Mishnah. So Shlishi, uh, Parshas Chukas, ends with the story of Naaman Riva. Um, the waters of contention where Moshe Rabbeinu uh, strikes the rock instead of hitting it, and therefore he and Aaron are punished that they will not bring that they will not enter Canaan with the rest of the Jewish people, and presumably therefore never enter um, Canaan. And then Rabbi begins by saying, so Moshe sends Malachim, messengers, runners, angels, uh, from Kadesh, whatever, wherever that city Kadesh is, it's not the standard Kadesh, which would not be in the right place, uh, to the king of Edom, who is not named. Um, so says your brother Israel, You know about all these unbearable things which found us in the desert. Our ancestors went down to Egypt and they stayed in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians were bad to us and to our ancestors and we cried out to God and God heard our voices at Vayishlach Malach and God sends his own Malach and he takes us out of Egypt and now here we are on our border, let us pass through your border. Um, okay, that's basic. That's our first part of Moshe Rabbeinu's message. Now there are echoes here that you get immediately um, which is the beginning of uh, start with the beginning of Parshas um, and the story, um, the episode of Yaakov and Esav uh, ends in a particular way. It ends with Yaakov saying, um, until I come to your to Adonai Seira. Uh, so it's possible that we can read this as a continuation of that story. Um, okay. Um, we can read it as uh, we can read it instead as a parallel to that story, without assuming that this is a fulfillment of Adavo of Eladini Seira. And we also have to put this in context of uh, Moshe's retelling of the story in Sefer Dvarim, uh, in Perik Bet, when uh, Moshe uh, Hashem says to Moshe, "It's time to leave Har Sinai, turn north, and command the people, saying, you are passing." Not clear, right? You know whether it's through the border or on the border of your brother, of uh, your brother, the, the brothers, the children of Esav. Hayushvim b'seir, v'yiruumikem, and they will be terrified of you. V'nishmartem maod, and you must be very careful. Alti skaruvam, don't antagonize them. Kilo atein lachem me'artsam ad midrach kafregel. I won't give you from their land even the a place to put your right to put to put your one foot, your one foot, your one footprint. Because I have given uh, Seir as Yerusha to Esav, you can't touch it. Okay, therefore you have to buy your food from them uh, with money, and then eat. And how you obtain Mayim, whatever the verb Tichrum is in that context, and then uh, with money, and then you'll drink. Okay, so we know um, what God tells Moshe to tell the people at some point. We have the background of Yaakov, and we have the story as it occurs in Sefer Midbar. That's one set of resonances. Another set of resonances we have to mention is Ace Kol Asher Mitzah Asnu is um, reminiscent of um, what Moshe tells um, Yisro at the very beginning of Parshish Yisro when, Yisro when Yisro shows up. So we, we read there in um, uh, Perek Yud Chet. Um, 
al odos Yisrael, es kol hatila'a, shirmetz aslam baderech, ve'atzilein Hashem. Right, so Moshe tells Yisrael to this, and so it could be that there's some um, conversion narrative resonances, if that's what you really think Yisro, uh, the Yisro story there is about. Okay, had, right, so that's just background, right? Really, we have uh, we have a context in Bereshus, which it might be the prequel, might be the foreshadowing, uh, right? Where Ramban says, We would expect it then to be, uh, if to be foreshadowing, uh, but then we would expect the story to run in parallel, as opposed to if you take this as a fulfillment, in which case you might expect the stories to be to invert, uh, for one to fulfill the other, issues like that. We have a context in Varim where Moshe says, where, uh, where Moshe tells a, a uh, where Moshe reports that God tells him something at some point, and then we have the story. Um, right, we have the um, the story in uh, Yisro. Okay, uh, the Medrash, and I'm going to read the versions from the Tanhuma, but I don't think it really means really makes a difference which, uh, for our purposes, which ones you read. The Medrash organizes um, our section in Parshas Chukas in terms of two metaphors. So Vishlach Moshe Malachim. So here is the Tanchuma's metaphor or mashal for this. Benohag Sheba Olam in the standard, the practice of the world. Adam Oseik BePrakmatya Im Chaveru BeHivsid. If a person engages in commerce with his fellow and his friend and loses out, Parashi Menuve Eno Roseli Roto. So then, what do you do? You avoid the person because they. Uh, right, they, they are they are an unpleasant memory for you. Like quote the pasuk uh, in which makes it very clear that Moshe is punished for memoriva, although that uh, becomes a controversy in uh, later in Rishonim uh, whether that's really memoriva is what causes Moshe. But this, you know, the simple narrative, the pasuk pshat, is that uh, Moshe is in fact um, punished because of memoriva. Um, even nonetheless, lo parak Moshe mas an me'lav elavay shlach Moshe malachim. So the first organizing metaphor is talking about uh, uh, Moshe sending spies. Moshe sending Moshe sending messengers. Moshe sending messengers malachim is the is carrying the burden of Bnei Yisrael, and the Torah tells us this, or the Torah juxtaposes this with the story of Bnei Riva. Uh, not just because it happened that way, maybe it did happen that way chronologically, maybe there was a gap of whatever period between them, uh, but we're assuming that we are in chronological order, uh, to tell us Moshe's virtue, that you would expect Moshe to sulk um, and to avoid um, B'nai Israel's work because he had just been punished because of them, and instead he gets right back on the uh, on the bicycle. So that's one, that's one metaphor. The second metaphor we have is um, is in terms of uh, Edom. All right, so what's the metaphor in terms of um, what Moshe is saying to Edom? So he says, um, So you have two brothers, um, and there's a there's um, a, a debt collection out against right a, a debt um, owed by their father, ancestor, whatever it may be. One of them pays the debt. And then one day he wants to borrow something from his brother. And he says to his brother, look, you know, I paid that debt that we really shared uh, for our father. So how could you possibly, uh, how could you possibly, um, 
How could you possibly deny this to me? So the um, so the implication seems to be that really what's going on here is that Avram is told in the Bris Ben Absarim that his ans- that his children um, that his right that his descendants are going to be um, strangers in a land not theirs uh, that they'll and they'll be enslaved and afflicted. And that that uh, the Rishon Hashanah did not explain which of Avram's children, and it turns out that it's that it's the children of Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov. And okay, but that's fine, so, right? But um, the issue we have is so right is at the end of the day, right? So yeah, why Yaakov and not Esav? So the answer is so that was really a debt, uh, right? A uh, a um, a debt owed by Avraham that we know in advance. There's a star. There's a document out. It's a. It's a uh, written attested loan. I'm sorry, I'm not remembering the, the word, um, not tra- the phrase precisely. And we paid it, and not you. So now you, Adam, you owe us. Okay, two organizing metaphors, and let's try and see whether we find them really compelling in the text. So let's take the um, let's take the first one, um, the one about Moshe. So there are a couple of. Uh, ways in which you could challenge this metaphor. Um, first of all, Moshe doesn't really have the option of ignoring B'nai Yisrael. Right? He's in a particular position, and he has a job to do. So it's not the same as a voluntary business relationship with somebody whom you have no uh, responsibility for. You have no achrayas to them. Uh, so that's one way of challenging the metaphor. Is it really right? To, is it really the stand, standard practice that if somebody is burned by the people for whom they are responsible, that they insult? In their positions, instead of continuing to fulfill them, uh, but there's a deeper thing, which is that uh, I should recognize what is Moshe asking for. Moshe is asking for passage through um, Edom so that they can get to Eretz Canaan as fast as possible. So, what Moshe is really trying to do is to finish the job. So now there are two ways of thinking about that. One way is, that, is of course, to say that if Moshe understands that what it really means is that he's going to die before Bnei Israel uh, enter Canaan, so what he's really at doing here is doing the work which leads to his own death. Um, so now the question is, is that a noble self-sacrifice on Moshe's part? Um, or the darker view of it would be that uh, Moshe no longer has anything to live for. There's no um, pot of gold at the end of his rainbow, whatever metaphor you want to use. Um, so there's, he just doesn't see any point. You know? So this is exactly what you'd expect him to do, which is since the process is no longer meaningful, since the process cannot regardless end in the result he wants for himself, so he just wants to get it done uh, as rapidly as possible. Right? So that's, that's uh, right. So the notion that he's disinterested, either way, the notion that he's disinterested uh, um, in continuing the work, and that right, he's only doing it for the sake of Bnei Israel, nobly, even though ordinarily when people cause you harm, um, through your attempts to engage with them, you avoid them. I'm not sure that's entirely. I'm not sure that's entirely compelling. Um, on the second metaphor, so let's we have to try and think about how would Edom take this, right? What is the expected result of sending a message to Edom, which says, "Look, there was a debt out against uh, our father, and we paid it, and now you have to give us everything within reason." Um, that's yeah, a little dicey. I, I have um, some moral discomfort, which I admit is rooted in Ayn Rand, about the idea that because you have 
chosen to do something for some person for another person, therefore they owe you. Um, right? Uh, Adam could say, "Well, I don't, you know, no one, you know, you never asked us to come down and be enslaved with you, and would that really, you know, I, I don't know that the argument is so compelling to Adam." Um, and in general, I want to know hey, how does Edom perceive what is happening now? Um, so it could be they perceive it as the fulfillment of Adavol Adonisa Ira, which Jacob says in Bridges, but we don't know whether they would perceive it as a promise or a threat. Because really, the whole story of, um, of Yaakov and Esav is um, amazingly ambiguous or ambivalent, whatever you want, right? Esav comes with Arbameod Ish. We tend to think of those Arbameod Ish as armed. And Yaakov is afraid when the Malachim come back and report that. Um, and then at the end, uh, Esav and Yaakov hug, which sounds really warm unless you have, right? Of course, you, have, you understand, you take the vision that Esav actually tried to bite him and failed because his neck turned to marble. Um, but even if we take that straightforwardly and we think that it represents not necessarily a fleeting emotion, but who Esav um, really was and felt. But then Esav says, let's go together. And Yaakov says, no. So we don't know how Esav takes that. Well, yeah, but eventually, right, he says, but, you know, the, uh, the, the sheep will die if we, uh, right, if we push them. And we have lots of children. So someday I'll come to Seir. But you know, Esav could very well know that there are um, interpretations which say that God gave Esav Seir only until such time as uh, Mashiach comes, and then they lose it, right? There are, there are sections in Navi which seem to suggest that. So, in that case, Adavol Adonisa Ira is an eschatological um, statement, which, from the perspective of Esav, means total ruin. So, um, so it could be that Esav and Edom are threatened by uh, are threatened th- threatened by it. It could be that the claim that you owe us is something that gets some people's back up. As opposed to saying yes, we um, yes, yes, sure. So I don't right. I you know I, I think it's an interesting claim, right? It, it answers the, it ans- you know it, it explains why the Israel go through this narrative when speaking, uh, when speaking to a dome. But it also doesn't necessarily yield dramatic surprise when they don't listen. Now Yisrael did listen, but Yisrael listened from a standpoint of identification, um, which is not the right. He's already right. He. He's not dealing with brotherhood as opposed to right, he's dealing with his son-in-law. Maybe that right. There's no rivalry in the same way. So it could be that Yisro took the same story uh, very differently than Edom did. Okay. So now um, Edom's reaction to the uh, to Moshe's messengers is Vayomer elav Edom los avor. So Edom says, "You shall not pass." Um, perhaps with the uh, a really dramatic Lord of the Rings, right? You shall, right? Uh, because if you try to pass, uh, I will come out to greet you with the sword. Okay, so the question is why? Why does, they, right, why does Edom react this way to B'nai Israel? The simplest reading of it is that they don't trust B'nai Israel to just uh, take, take passage through. Um, after which, right, so then after they say this, right, they love B'nai Israel. Israel say, right, so Moshe originally had said, we'll pass through land, we won't pass through fields or, or vineyards, we won't drink well water, but Israel seemed to think that the rejection of Edom 
um, said is act was rooted in so either in something Moshe said or in an insufficient something Moshe said. So they extend the promise and they say, um, or they say we won't, right, we will pay for everything. It's not we won't do any damage. We will pay for everything. And uh, Edom nonetheless says, Vayomer lo savor. Right, Edom says, you, right, you shall not pass. And Edom in fact comes out to greet them. Ve'am kavedu v'yad chazaka. Lots of people and uh, and attempted intimidation. And Eva ain't Edom the son of Israel of Orbig Velo. So Edom um, refuses permission to the Jews to pass through. Vayed Yisrael me'alav and the the Jews turn away. So we have to figure out right how this relates to the story in Devarim. Um, in the story in Devarim, Hashem tells Hashem tells Moshe that um, what's going what's going to happen or what's not going to happen is right. You're not going to get any you're not going to get any other land, um, and don't antagonize them. Right, Therefore, you should buy food from them and water drink from them, and and buy the water you drink from them. Now, is that necessarily in the in the course of your transit, or is that advice as to what you should do when you're on the border? You should engage in economic transactions. It's not clear. Um, it doesn't. Right, it depending on whether you say atem of does that mean that you're already in the borders, or does it mean that you're now passing along the border? If we put the two stories together, it seems like you're passing along the border. Uh, but it seems that if Moshe, in fact, told us the Bnei Israel, so the Bnei Israel are reacting properly. They're telling Edom this, right, exactly what God tells them they have to do, and yet it does nothing. Right? Edom reacts, um, Edom reacts ju- with force, and Bnei Israel leave. So why does God tell them this? Um, and was there anything they could have said that would make Edom react differently, or was this the inevitable outcome? In which case, why does God say this to them? So it seems to me that the um, really the only uh, the only commentary I found who at least understands all the challenges in the narrative, whether you necessarily find his reading compelling or not, uh, is the Nitziv. And so what I want to do is read the Nitziv's interpretation through with you. And then um, right, we can talk about what it uh, what it means in the context of all the stories of all the um, interpretations in Mishalim um, and contextual claims uh, we've made uh, we've made so far. Um, I do want to point out one um, one other thing in, in advance, which is that another another thing. The first organizing metaphor about Moshe uh, Moshe being willing to do the burden or not is that. We should note that there are other connections, it seems, between the story of Mirivah and this, because in both Moshe's original sp- sending and in the Israel secondary sending, and to a slightly lesser extent in God's story in Devarim, we're talking about water, and we're talking about natural, right, obtaining, if you buy water, right, you're talking about obtaining water by natural means and not relying on supernatural water. Um, so that also that, that may mean something in the context of the fight of Memriva, which was about the absence of a, a non miraculous source uh, source of water. Um, I say the simplest way of reading it sequentially is that after the story of Memriva, everybody involved says we're not going to let this happen again, and so we're not going anywhere unless we have an arrangement for water 
that we can count on, which is not which does not depend on a miracle. But there may be something deeper uh, as well. Okay, so let's take a look at what Nesiv says. Um, so says that so he makes a really fascinating claim right? uh, that it makes a difference whether you said Vayishlach Malachim Moshe Malachim Mikadesh or Vayishlach Moshe Mikadesh Malachim. If you said Vayishlach Moshe Mikadesh Malachim, that would mean that Moshe, Moshe be, be, uh, who was in Kadesh sent Malachim. But as it says Vayishlach Moshe Malachim Mikadesh, that he thinks means that Moshe sent messengers who were residents of Kadesh. Uh, so the question is, why does Moshe send messengers who are residents of Kadesh and not send, uh, not send members of Bnei Israel? So maybe he's burned by the Miraglim, uh, and he's not going to do the effort to send, make that make that mistake again. Uh, although then it, later it says, so maybe that's not a really good explanation um, at all, since he does in fact seem to send spies again. So the Tzivah says the following. Um... Says, um, right, so it means he sent people who lived in Kadesh. Right, it says the reason is that in general it's dangerous to send Jews unprotected among non Jews. And he says, look, in, uh, in later, later in Nach, we'll discover that Melech uh, Bremon does. Uh, right, does does cruel things to his messengers by shaving half their beards, humiliating them. And Moshe doesn't want to expose his messengers to humiliation, but that tips us off that Moshe does not expect the response to be positive. So whether you buy uh, or don't buy the claim that the order of the words there is dispositive, and you can look at Nitzvah's evidence and see it, um, the right the argument he's making, which we which really which is really what matters to me, is that Moshe sends this message with no expectation of success. So now, why does he send this message with no expectation of success? He says, Anam, yesh od devaram look. There's something, another very deep thing going on here. Shere anu roim devishlichus harishona kosav ha'yishlach m'sheh, lovishlichus ha'shniya, k'siv ha'yamru elav b'nei Yisrael. So this, I think, is, uh, when you look at it, it's unmistakable. The, the messengers originally are sent by Moshe. There's a reply, no, and then b'nei Yisrael get involved. So, what does that mean, right? So you can say that Moshe represents Bnei Israel as no real change, but I think Chitziv is making a um, is making a powerful point that um, it sounds like Bnei Israel are dissatisfied with the result of Moshe's original message, and so and as opposed to giving up, they send a second message. So what are we supposed to do about that, uh, right? Why does that happen? So one possibility is that we're seeing the slippage of Moshe Rabbeinu's uh, influence or power, um, that people, Rabbeinu Israel, don't take his word on policy as final um, because he's, they know that he, they're going to need a transition soon anyway. Maybe in some ways they right, they even suspect his motives. Um, let's see, however, right, I think those are what I think are the most likely uh, ways I would react to the evidence that Steve brings, but let's see understands it um, very differently. So he says... Um, it's true that Moshe understands perfectly well from the beginning that Moab is not that Edom, Edom is not going to let Ben Israel pass through for whatever reason. We'll see what which reason it says at the end. So he thinks that when Hashem says this to Moshe, it doesn't mean doesn't mean you won't even get this you know the the area of a footprint, but it means is I won't even give you from their land 
permission to put your foot down. So we can also decide whether uh, evaluate whether that's the correct shot in Lo Atem Lachem Midrach Kaf Regal. If you interpret it Siv's way, so then Moshe knows because he was told by prophecy that Adom will say no, um, which is certainly reasonable. Um, I'd say the alternatives, which I would probably prefer, are that Moshe knows this because he understands how he understands the framework within which Adom is um, Adom is reacting. So then, once we know that Moshe is does not expect a positive response, so now we can ask a second next question, which is, but does Moshe frame the message in the way which he thinks is most likely to get a positive response, even though he thinks it's unlikely that there will be a positive response? Or does Moshe send this message, even though he knows that another message would get a positive response because he doesn't want a positive response? Um, or is Moshe's agenda here utterly unrelated to the question of how Edom will react? That's not really what interests him, or at least it's the question of whether Edom will give permission or not is not what interests him, and that's what Natsiv suggests in a um, really a very striking reading. He says, um, Moshe, so, but in his vision, Moshe knows this through prophecy, and therefore it's absolute knowledge. Nothing Moshe says will get Bnei Yisrael through Edom, because God said, I won't even give you a Midrach Kaf Regal. So then why go through the whole farce of, um, of sending messages? So he says, if we go look at the Pesachim in Dvarim, it says, V'avira'u mikem, v'nishmartem od altis garubom. So they'll be terrified of you, um, and you have to be very careful. Don't antagonize them. So if you read across the Pesach, it's, they'll be terrified, and you have to be very careful not to antagonize them. Um, and you can read it even more dramatically, and this is what Nitziv does, to say that their natural condition is to be terrified of you, because, right, if you go back to Azyashir, right, so everyone, that's what Rachav pulls up. So Nitziv says, right, this is very uh, in character, he says, if we read Azyashir, it says, so Aznifalu suggests that there's a time when it's not so. And that later, when Rachav talks about that everyone is trembling because of it, he means except Edom. Okay, so now what's Moshe trying to do? So here it says something I think really quite astounding. He says, So the mitzvah is to be careful that you don't do anything um, to antagonize them, meaning you don't do anything that will increase their fear. But then we go a step further, and not only that, it becomes a positive mitzvah. You have to go out of your way to remove their fear. Now, that's interesting. Like, where does Nasiv get a positive mitzvah? I mean, Vinish Martem, Oed, right, is, is an Isra say. Everything is don't do anything which will cause them fear. Um, but then you could have just avoided their border at all. So Nasiv says, no, no, no. There must be, the, it must be there's a positive mitzvah to relieve their fear. And so what Moshe is doing, he says, is the right. So the mitzvah is to remove Edom's fear and to give them security to build their confidence, for them to believe that there is no way that B'nai Israel could traverse the land without their permission. And the, Now you might think, okay, so we're going to build their confidence and therefore they'll let us through. 
But Nesiv says, no, Moshe knows they're not going through. So that's out of the question. So the whole purpose of this is just to make them secure in the land that, gra- that God granted them. Um, so, so the point of Moshe's message is to give Edom the the right the correct understanding that everything that, that they have the right to say no. Now, once Edom in fact sends an aggressive response, right? Don't tr- try to pass, or I will come out and meet you by the sword. So Moshe knows that they're no longer afraid. And so Moshe, as far as he's concerned, he's done his job. I sent a message which made clear to them it's their choice. And they said no. Now what's not clear is how this idea relates to the Medrash, which says that um, that Moshe's making an argument about the debt, which seems to imply that some kind of moral claim, I don't know that it fits well with that uh, with that at all. Um, okay, but in the Chinitziv's universe, so Moshe's done his job, he's accomplished what he wants to accomplish, but B'nai Yisrael didn't understand that. Uh, we don't know at what point Moshe reads the, right, um, teaches B'nai Yisrael what we learn in Parshas Dvarim, but maybe he teaches it now after Moab says after Edom says no, and what Bnei Yisrael pick up is you have to, right you have to promise to pay for everything. You shouldn't right they shouldn't think that they they shouldn't think that they owe you anything here in this regard at all. And maybe Bnei Yisrael are, are right wonder hey Moshe you took exactly the wrong approach. God told us that the whole what we're supposed to do is emphasize that we will not right that we won't. We won't take anything. We won't um, scavenge. We'll pay for everything. And here you are. Right, you just gave them a metaphor. Uh, right, told them all about Mitzrayim and implied that they owe us. So Bnei Israel take over from Moshe. And here's the same thing. Bnei Israel don't understand what Moshe is doing. They think that Moshe is really negotiating uh, in the hope that they will that, that Edom will let him through. And therefore, what they see is Moshe having blundered. So they step in and they try to give a uh, sign to Edom that is in accordance with what they understand is what God wanted. They don't seem to have understood uh, the way Moshe did. They think it means, as I originally suggested, that you won't inherit, you won't get any of the land. So Bnei Israel sent, uh, right, so Bnei Israel sent a second message um, to Moshe, uh, which is right, which is either either without consulting Moshe or against Moshe's will. Um, and then Adam says, no, anyway, right, which Moshe knew. Right? But, that's a, but to me, if you take that reading and see if it's clear that what's happening is the, uh, is the collapse of Moshe Rabbeinu's authority, um, this is just another version of the Mapilim. <coughs> and now it's going to go back and says the reason that Moshe had to, um, had to send non-Jewish messengers is because Moshe is afraid that if he sends Jewish messengers, they will pick up on the fear the Canaanites have before Moshe is sending the message, but maybe they'll be intimidated by the sight of actual Bnei Israel, And Bnei Israel will see the fear, and then they'll come back, and they'll no longer be willing to listen to God and, and to Moshe, and refuse to go in. They'll say, look, they said no, let's just take it over. So therefore Moshe sends non-Jews 
who will simply report back the words and not make their own evaluation of the morale of the Edomite forces. Um, okay, so what I want to just point out, right, this is really what an astounding thing to say that there's a mitzvah and Moshe Rabbeinu is engaged, even though his power is diminished, but right, and he, it sounds like this is, he can't tell B'nai Yisrael what he's doing, because B'nai Yisrael will perhaps suspect him and saying, ah, you just don't want us to get to Canaan because you know that you're going to lose leadership if we ever get to Canaan, and you're going to die if we ever get to Canaan. So if B'nai Yisrael have any sus- suspicion that Moshe is doing this on purpose, they would never let it, they would never let it happen. Um, but Moshe Rabbeinu pulls off this dazzling tour de force to fulfill God's will, and what God's will is, is that Esav should not feel in any way uh, that B'nai Israel have designs on his land. They should feel secure in their inheritance. And the whole bright Moshe sends it just because somehow God owes Edom that security. Now, at the end it says, um, so, right, but now, now, now that we've accomplished this, so Bnei Yisrael, in fact, um, in fact, think that Edom, right, they believe Edom's posturing, and they think there's no fear, and therefore there's no risk that Bnei Yisrael will ignore God again, as they did with the Mapilim, and try to pass through Edom, because they think that Edom is a well, uh, secure and militarily place. But now, um, now, why does Edom not let them through? Right? Why does Edom not let them through? So the um, the Tziv says that Edom doesn't let them through um, because Edom hates them. So right, uh, Hashem says, Hashem says to Moshe, right? Right? They doesn't let them transfer. The Torah testifies that Edom did not have a, a, um, a an objective rationale for not letting Bnei Yisrael through. They just didn't want them in their territory. Because of this deep-seated hate that they've been nurturing for generations since Yaakov and Esav. They won't do even things that are right? They won't even do things that be- they'd rather have a lose-lose situation. They don't get the money, and we don't get to pass through, than a win-win situation in which we pass through and they get the money because they hate us. So that itself is really quite astounding. Um, because it means that God is going out of his way to... God is going out of his way to create security and confidence and that Bnei Israel won't invade in people who just hate us. Um, so that, that I think is also a morally astounding thing. Does, in the end of the day, and it's think that, and this is, I think, the you know, the best I can do, uh, that um, perhaps Nitzif thinks that Moshe knows that it's not going to work now because... This is our first encounter. There's been hate for a very, very long time, and the first encounter is not going to change that. There's a that right. The lens through which Edom sees this is one of terror, which is at least how they interpret the Adya Avol the Nisayira. They interpret that as a threat and not as a 
a vision of because Yaakov didn't agree to go with Esav. He obviously um, he obviously meant from their perspective that he would come only when he was powerful enough uh, to rule. And Moshe knows there's no way past that. All he can do is to say, look, I really mean it. I'm only going to come if you let me, and if you don't let me, I will just go on. And then, after Edom sees that in fact they go on, and perhaps after Edom sees what happens in Canaan, where it's clear that they didn't have they didn't have to go on, they chose to go on. So maybe there's some point later than this narrative in which Bnei Israel and Edom can actually um, can actually reconcile. That seems to me with a likely importance of Steve's interpretation, um, and that you know that idea, right, the notion that the Torah engages in this kind of long-term project, um, acknowledging the existence of current hate, which is ineradicable, and yet saying that it's worth investing, and that you're not you're never going to get over fear um, by you're never going to get over hatred through fear, right? Fear reinforces hatred. And yes, it's really inconvenient that you have to go around them instead of going through them. But uh, that's what you have to do. So that, that I think, would be a, could be a really um, a really astounding moral message. How exactly you would apply it in uh, today's world? Um, you know, so talking about Esau, right? So I think it's astounding that our, you know, our relationship with Edom, if you want, right? Which we, uh, at some point, becomes um, Rome. Um, and at some point, more into the Roman Catholic Church. So, you know, I, I wrote something about the Ravzesi confrontation, which I was, you know, many years ago, uh, which I was more pessimistic. I think I have uh, moved at some point and said, but I think even at the time, you have to say that it's just an utterly astounding thing that, uh, as opposed to people saying, Halacha Esau Sonia Es Yaakov, which is a very popular thing to quote. Uh, in my childhood, it, you don't hear that very much now because it just doesn't seem plausible. Um, it doesn't seem true. It doesn't relate to experience. Um, so whether you would apply the same sorts of things uh, to Yishmael, um, where our relationship has become much fraught and we much more focused on that relationship than Edom, how seriously you take these historical typologies, I leave to you. Um, but I think that uh, I think that the, what Nitziv says is clear. He says that there's, Moshe understood God as commanding him to do everything he could to reassure Edom, uh, and that, but that Bnei Israel don't share this. Uh, right, that's not that's not the the it's not Moshe's constituency, and it's really hard. Moshe has to do this, even though his constituency opposes him, and he can't let them find out. Uh, right, so the politically fraught uh, challenge of uh, engaging in building up the confidence of those who your constituency correctly perceive or cu- currently hate you and uh, and are willing to go to war against you, uh, right? That's you know, that's really complicated and beautiful and challenging, and I don't want to make any facile um, connections. But at the same time, I think that as always, you know, that um, and I don't I don't claim that Siv is that Siv is the only interpretation here. But if you know if there's a powerful uh, Torah interpretation that reveals aspects of the story that it seems to me are there whether you accept the specific interpretation that we at least have to uh, be aware of them and consider them in our own decisions.